Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, this has to do uh, with what we were just chatting about with the Gordon McDonald's. And we're asking you, when the city of Victoria became the first city to endorse a campaign for provincially funded contraception, well, we know that's the case, the city of Vancouver plans to vote on a similar motion today. So our hot question of the day, do you support MSP covering contraception contraceptive options for women? You can vote yes, you can vote no, you can do so at Twitter at CKNW, at Jill Reports. Uh, Claire Allen, our contributor to the program, has also tweeted it out, as well as producer Ben Dooley. We'd love to get your take. We have a few votes that have come in already. It seems like people are shifting on the yes side, but we'd love to hear from you. You can also give the Buzzline a call and leave your comments there if you like. 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. And a little bit of background on this. Access BC has been on this campaign. I believe believe they launched it on World Contraception Day back in 2019, just last year. And some of the numbers that have been put forward, and these numbers are from a study that was done in 2010. So in 2010, the estimate was that BC residents, the cost of providing universal, no-cost birth control, so birth control to both men and women, would cost about $50 million. But the group also says it would save up to $95 million annually as costs for supporting unplanned pregnancies would would be reduced by bringing in this initiative. And one of the arguments being, and we mentioned this as well, that vasectomies are covered under MSP. They are not something that people have to pay for. Well, men would have to pay for out of pocket. So the argument being, why should women have to pay for contraception as well. There's not a medical reason, at least I don't think there's a a medical reason for a man to get a vasectomy. So why shouldn't it also be free for the equivalent in women, whatever birth control option that is? Let us know what you think. The hot question of the day on Twitter, do you support MSP covering the cost of contraceptive options for women? You can vote yes or no, and we will share some of those responses a bit later on in the program. You can also email me if you want to join this conversation or if there is anything on your mind, Jay Bennett, that's J-B-E-N-N-E-T-T at cknw.com. And again, we'll share some of those comments a bit later on in the program. Earlier on in the program, we heard a little bit of Simi's interview with Wally Opal. He was providing an update on the Surrey police transition. He was speaking this morning at a Surrey Board of Trade event. Surrey City Councillors, including Brenda Locke, were in attendance. And Brenda Locke joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we heard a little bit from Wally Opal. I suppose some of the big questions uh, are still cost, uh, what it might cost to go to a civic force. So what other, what else uh, sticks out for you as far as the information that was released this morning? Well, I think um, it was interesting to hear Mr. Opal talk about um, 
the RCMP and what a, a good job they have done. But I think more importantly for me was to hear what the residents were saying and I and the questions that came from the floor. I talked to many people uh, before and after the um, meeting and uh, especially after. I think people were uh, profoundly disappointed uh, by Mr. Opal's comments. I think uh, they believed he would have been objective going into this, but they found out that he was biased in their words. And uh, so uh, that was a concern. Biased how? Well, they they uh, they believe that Mr. Opal was really leaning towards uh, the, the mayor and his uh, four councillors' opinion. They didn't uh, hear much about what was in the report that he provided to uh, the director of police services, and that concerned them a lot. Um, they certainly uh, were really uh, vocal about saying the public hasn't had their opportunity to comment and the citizens of Surrey do not want um, do not want this Surrey Police Department and certainly not under uh, the purview of Mayor McCallum. Uh, hasn't the public had a chance though as far as the various events or the uh, open houses and such that people have been invited to and have been free to attend? Yeah, thanks for that, Joe. I'll tell you, um, that was a question that came from the floor. There was a, after six months and going through an FOI process, um, I finally got that report released. It was uh, a very long report. Uh, Mr. Opal was asked if he'd seen the report, and his answer was no, he hadn't. the mayor had said that that report indicated that the public wanted a Surrey RCMP, but the raw, the raw data was absolutely the opposite. It was closer to about 70% do not want to get rid of the RCMP. Um, but the questions in that uh, report or that um, consultation process were, were just uh, sub, subpar. Uh, when you listened to Wally Opal this morning uh, release the information, did you think that he was leaning towards uh, the mayor and the mayor's position? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I, I thought um, he, his responses were really uh, not considered of the will of, of the citizens of Syria. I think um, he, he said very many times that he's heard, um, he's heard from the citizens of Syria, but it sounded a bit patronizing because he kept saying, oh, just keep on doing what you're doing. But there was no kind of accountability for for his report, what it was going to say, um, what he thought of the initial police transition report that the, the city of Surrey uh, submitted to, uh, to the minister. So there wasn't a lot of um, substance in, in that regard. And and so his job, though, was to look at whether or not or to oversee this, the idea of whether or not it makes sense to shift from the RCMP to a civic force. So do you think he did his job? Well, you know, I guess that remains to be seen. I mean, certainly we didn't hear anything. Uh, the mayor has said he hasn't seen the report, but he knows that it's 500 pages. I have not seen the report, so I can't I can't tell you whether or not Mr. Opal did his job or he did not. And I guess that part uh, we'll see. Uh, Do do you fear that this is turning into more of a, or has become uh, more of a personal, uh, whether you like the mayor or not, and by you, I mean the the people, obviously the people that were in the room today that came out to this, this is an important issue for them. Has it turned into a more of a popularity contest in that it's a personality thing with the mayor and, and maybe that's muddying the actual issue of what is better for policing for Surrey? 
You know, that's a really good question. Um, I guess if you ask me, do the residents of Surrey trust the mayor to head up a police board? That would be a better question. And and I guess you can only look to what the polling has uh, uh, said. And the polling has been anywhere from 70 to 80% of the people want to keep the police or the RCMP as their police force. So I, I think that's more the question. I don't think there's... The lack of process, the lack of clarity, the lack of accountability and transparency in the process has led us to this place where there is zero trust in in the outcome. And, you know, that's all because of the secretive nature of the process that is all at the feet of the mayor. But it's also now becoming a secretive process at the feet of the NDP government because... Um, Mr. Opal's report hasn't been released, so I think uh, there's huge challenges. And as far as as the transition uh, then as well, I mean, do you think, is it something that at this point, I know there was talk of a referendum at the meeting today, uh, is that something, is that conversation still ongoing, or is that an idea that that it's unlikely to happen? You know, according to Mr. Opal, and, you know, I I probably 100% agree with him on this, um, the notion of the referendum is the decision of city government, and it is very unlikely that given the uh, the situation at Surrey Council right now, um, there will be a referendum call on this. Uh, what do you think about the, the fact that Mayor McCallum wasn't at the Board of Trade event this morning? I did not expect him to be there. Um, he... Uh, I just did not expect him to be there, but neither was any one of his other four councillors that are on his team. They didn't seem interested in in hearing any of that information either. Uh, does that seem odd, though, since this was a, an update on the very one of the two issues that he says he ran on and was elected on? It's very odd. I mean, I can tell you, Councillor Annis Hundel and Pet. Pettigrew were all there, um, and of course myself, and uh, very interested. This is this is top of mind with everybody in Surrey. I have never seen our city rise up like this before. They are angry. They are offended. Uh, we heard today people getting up and saying um, democracy is absolutely failing in Surrey because of this. This is a very large issue for the city of Surrey, and and I think people need to pay more attention to it uh, in Victoria. Uh, so where does the process go now uh, at this point? Well, it's, um, it's according to Mr. Opal, it's with uh, the Director of Police Services, Brenda Butterworth-Carr, and, uh, and she will be uh, taking a look at the report that Mr. Opal provided her and making her recommendations to uh, Minister Farnworth. And um, so there is still... Uh, there's still a lot of parts of that part of the process. The um, provincial government also has to appoint the um, the police board for Surrey or start to those wheels in motion for a police board. Um, I think that was one of the good things that Mr. Opal pointed out, that uh, we now can have a police board with the RCMP. We have known that all along. Uh, certainly um, some of us knew that all along. Apparently the mayor didn't know that. But um, so... We know that that police board can transition to be an RCMP police board, and I would suggest that might be something that would be pretty palatable to the residents of Surrey.
And is it automatic that Doug McCallum, that the mayor will be the chair or the head of the police board? Yeah, I think so. But I, I don't know exactly the process there. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. But thank you so much uh, for taking some time. I know it's been a busy morning. Uh, thanks for joining us to talk a bit more about this today. Thank you for having me. All right. That is Brenda Locke, a Surrey City Councillor. She was in attendance at the Surrey Board of Trade meeting this morning where we heard from Wally Opal uh, giving an update on his report looking at the transition to a Surrey Civic Police Force. So let's take a look at what is happening south of the border. And Democrats, as you might have seen or heard, unleashed a bit of an assault against Bernie Sanders and took a look at Mike Bloomberg's past with women in the workplace. This all happening during the debate uh, that tested the strength of the two who many say are at the center of the nomination fight for the party's uh, presidential nomination. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Global National's Washington correspondent. He's on the line with us now. Reggie, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Uh, What is your takeaway or what do we take away from the debate last night? Well, I think it's easy to take away that there is a growing amount of fear and panic in the center-running candidates uh, who have been polling on the lower side of things over the last couple of months because there was a very uh, clear understanding that there are a couple on stage that might not be at the next debate and might be out by the time we get through Super Tuesday next week. And I think that's why we saw such a concerted effort to not only pile on the front-runner, but simply ignore the rule of the debate and the moderators and talk as frequently and as much as they could. Uh, Which doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't seem like it gets them any favors. People, it's difficult to follow. It's difficult to watch for the people that might have been tuning in to actually get some substance or to learn more about where they stand. It is. And I think a part of this, though, is is the format of the debate, uh, which also doesn't work well for some of the candidates, especially when the moderators try to structure things to limit things to basically a minute or a minute 15 in order to be able to get a message out. It's oftentimes simply not enough to get your kind of cohesive platform or policy idea out, nor uh, when the moderators are opening up the questions with the same questions that we've heard start off every single debate platforms aren't going to change. Policy isn't going to change. Most people know where these candidates stand. And I think by the time we were able to get through the second hour of the debate with a more kind of global influence on on what they wanted to kind of get out of these candidates, everybody was kind of tired and simply going after each other, uh, you know, whether or not it was pointing uh, at Bernie Sanders or trying to keep Joe Biden out of the mix. Uh, Last night's debate didn't do any favors for anyone. I don't know if we could also say, though, that it didn't do anything for anyone. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think about this fact, this kind of pile on Bernie Sanders and trying to knock him down? Well, I mean, it's expected. Bernie Sanders is the front runner. He's been the front runner now for the last couple of months. He swept, essentially, the first few debate uh, uh, primaries and caucuses, and he hasn't really faced any consequences on stage. Last time we had a debate, everybody piled up on Michael Bloomberg because he was the new person on stage. Before that, most people piled up on Vice President Joe Biden because he was still perceived to be a frontrunner and was eroding some support from the centrist. Now, last night, we finally saw what it was like when Bernie Sanders came under attack, and sometimes he failed. He wasn't able to kind of come up with a uh, kind of a grand slam comment to to, uh, kind of bounce everything back at them. But that's simply what you get when you're leading the pack. And Bernie Sanders felt that last night. And what do you think about the fact, uh, I think last time we talked uh, about the debates and what was happening uh, in this race, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden had kind of disappeared. They weren't even factoring in uh, some of the coverage and certainly they weren't the heavy hitters in the previous debates. Is this a bit of a return or how do you gauge that? 
Well, this is the Elizabeth Warren that kind of sounded like the Elizabeth Warren from prior debates, but she had a little bit more fire in the belly when she was trying to go after particularly Michael Bloomberg. Again, Bernie Sanders is the front runner, but Elizabeth Warren was trying to just make sure that Michael Bloomberg couldn't siphon off any potential further votes, considering how poorly she has done over the last uh, couple of debates and in those first primaries. I think with Vice President Joe Biden, he has put all of his eggs in one basket. His, uh, he has essentially said that his political career now is going to uh, be tied to what happens in South Carolina, and knowing that this is a state that he has anticipated that he's going to win, that he's leading in the polls in right now, that's why we saw some of that fire come out from him last night. He was able to speak clearly on policies from the past. You know, he kind of used that old hook of, I wrote this bill and I did this when we were in office, taking credit for some of the things that President Obama did. But at the end of the day, he was speaking to an audience that he knows is going to vote for him no matter what. He picked up a big endorsement for today, was probably his best performance performance uh, to date, even though it wasn't the greatest performance. Uh, CNN is calling Bloomberg's performance last week disastrous. So what do you think about his performance last night? Well, I mean, his performance was mildly better than it was during the first go at it. But even still, when he was confronted by Elizabeth Warren on matters having to do with non-disclosure agreements and issues that he has had uh, with female workers at the Bloomberg organization in the past, he still wasn't able to provide an answer that would have done well, uh, you know, for, for the number of people who might have been watching. The thing that was working for him, there were crowds in the audience that were very, very clearly lined up with specific candidates. And when Michael Bloomberg Bloomberg spoke, he got a lot of cheers from the audience, and oftentimes that same crowd would then boo somebody like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, and there's now some criticism on the the DNC because you had to pay, uh, essentially give a donation to the DNC to get a ticket, and the donation started around $1,700. So you can imagine that there were certain people there that were able to make that kind of money that might have been backing certain candidates. Absolutely. Uh, With Elizabeth Warren going after uh, Michael Bloomberg for his past uh, and perhaps his past treatment of women or using going going that route. Uh, I found that interesting given that here we have a president of the United States. This president was elected after that recording was released where he basically said it was okay to grab women, to assault women. Uh, do you think this is something that resonates with voters? Is it different because we're talking about a Democratic candidate? Well, we're talking about a Democratic candidate, but we're also talking about a Democratic candidate who's only been a Democrat for a year. Michael Bloomberg was a longtime Republican only up until the tail end of 2018. But outside of that, I think that this is, uh, you know, it, it sounds awful and it sounds terrible, but this is a country who's now had to come to terms with the fact that their president, uh, you know, the, the, the commander in chief has been accused of uh, some uh, significant wrongdoings when it comes to not only business dealings and dealings with the presidency, he's also had uh, uh, accusations against him when it comes to his his private life and uh, and and a number of women and you know Elizabeth Warren is trying to make that case out there by saying we don't need to have a president like this in office we already have one and look at the turmoil that it's put this country into and I think that her strategy to go after Michael Bloomberg may be paying off for her slightly but considering that she has yet to place above number three in any of these uh, previous primaries and caucuses she needs to not only step up her attacks on Michael Bloomberg she needs to increase those attacks on Bernie Sanders, because ultimately they're aligned with each other and his supporters are the ones that she needs. And finally, Reggie, wanted to ask you as well about the voters, particularly in South Carolina, where the debate was held last night. Uh, A lot of the issue of race has been brought up many times. The fact that the African-American vote in South Carolina is a very big, a very large number. How did that play into the debate or how was that addressed? 
So race was brought up in a number of different aspects last night, whether or not it was housing, whether or not it was in employment, whether or not uh, it was uh, legalization of marijuana and the significant number of African-Americans that are in jail over uh, Caucasian Americans. And I think each candidate tried to play it to their best ability to be able to say that, you know, they would be looking out for the African-American community. The problem was that Joe Biden really has locked up that debate. He's done a lot of work with the African-American community in South Carolina, not as of recent, but simply when he was back in the office with Barack Obama. Uh, this is what has helped solidify his numbers with uh, that diverse population in South Carolina, which is why he says he's going to do so well with them. And it resonated uh, both before and after the polling, where it shows that there is still a significant uh, portion of the African-American vote through South Carolina that still stands with Joe Biden, despite the fact some of that support is actually being eaten away and eroded by Bernie Sanders. Uh, and you mentioned Super Tuesday coming up. What do we expect or what can we watch for next? Well, you're going to watch for the fact that Michael Bloomberg is finally going to be on a ticket when it comes to uh, somebody's ability to vote. So we're going to see what kind of ability he has to siphon, uh, you know, crucial votes away from someone like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. Bernie Sanders still does significantly well in uh, the really big states like California, where there are hundreds and hundreds of delegates up for grab that he is likely going to be walking away with. I think Super Tuesday, if Joe Biden survives uh, through Saturday, he'll pick up a good number by next Tuesday. But if Bernie Sanders does as well as polls are showing him to be doing, this could be an insurmountable lead that Bernie Sanders picks up on Tuesday and makes it next to impossible for anyone to catch up. All right, Reggie, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to break it all down for us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, he is the Global National Washington correspondent, again, looking at the debate last night in South Carolina. All right, a lot of people are joining the conversation on our hot question of the day. It has to do with Vancouver City Council uh, taking a vote today, and it has to do with the push to get contraception covered for everybody, for men, women, for whoever wants to access contraception Right now, the reality is that we don't have equity on access to contraception. So people with penises have it covered and people with uteruses don't. It's a historic imbalance. All right. That was Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle uh, talking about it. And Victoria has already put its support behind the group that is leading this called Access BC. And again, Vancouver making that decision to or at least putting it to a vote today to do that as well. We have made it our hot question of the day and a lot of people are joining the conversation. So our question basically with that little bit of background is, do you support MSP covering contraceptive options for women? You can vote yes or no. Right now, the yes votes are winning it. You can vote on Twitter at CKNW or at Jill Reports if you want to access it there. Or you can give me an email, jbennett at cknw.com or head on over to the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. Let's bring in Dr. Ruth Habte. She is with Obstetrics and Gynecology, a resident at UBC, also with the group Access BC. That's a committee of people from around BC, they are the ones calling for the removal of barriers to accessing prescription contraception. And she joins us now to talk about the campaign and where the campaign is at. Dr. Habte, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. Uh, So talk a bit about this campaign and what exactly uh, you're doing. Yeah, so this campaign started a number of years ago um, by uh, Teal as well as Devin who are both um, great leaders of this campaign, who essentially started a Twitter account saying that this is not fair, that um, the duty for contraception um, falls on the person who has the uterus and 
cost is often a, a major barrier in accessing the type of contraception that that person wants to have for their body. So they started this Twitter campaign, and years down the road, we now have a um, active Twitter account. We now have an active letter generating software where people can email their MLAs as well as the health minister and the premier, um, and are actively lobbying um, various levels of government to adopt this policy. And do you have an idea on what is the most popular or common type of contraception that, that women choose? I would say a lot of women choose the oral contraceptive pill. By and far, those are the ones that I prescribe the most commonly. But I, I think a bit of that is skewed in that once a person has an intrauterine device, it's often good for like five, ten years. Some of them are good for three years. So we're not seeing those people for those concerns related to contraceptives anymore. So I think my, my view of things are a little bit skewed in that way. And, and what would the average cost? Or do we know what a woman would pay for contraception? For sure. So if someone gets their oral contraceptive pill, so a combination of usually estrogen and progesterone, there's also a progesterone-only pill that's not quite as effective and has a bit more finicky things that needs to be taken with them. Those ones are usually about $20 a month if someone's buying it month to month. If someone's able to afford to buy three months at a time, then usually it's a little bit cheaper at like $50 or something like that a month. Um, if somebody wants um, a copper IUD, so one that does not have hormones in it, a device that goes into the uterus um, to provide contraception, that costs anywhere from $75 to $100. And then if someone wants a hormonal IUD, which is um, can be a very popular option, I'd say a lot more people would want to use it if they could, um, that one costs about $400. But wow. it's a one-time cost. Um, you put it in, and it's good for five years. And why is that one more popular? Um, I would say for a number of reasons. So first, people are forgetful. Anyone is very forgetful. To take this, like a pill at the same time every single day is difficult. Um, and as well, uh, this one can, and as well, if you take the Morena IUD, so the one that has slightly more hormones than the Kylina IUD, it can stop you from having periods altogether. So people who have uteruses and hate having periods, this is a great option for them. It also is great because it doesn't have estrogen in it, which um, is a, a contraindication for a number of people with who are over 35 and smoking, who have uncontrolled blood pressure, who have other health conditions that just prevent us from using estrogen as a product. All right. So as it stands now, then, if somebody, are women ever prescribed uh, pill, the pill or any of these contraceptions as, as a medically needed, uh, something that's medically needed? And if so, is it covered at that point? So various levels of coverage. Um, I'm new to this province. I will say I was a pharmacist in Manitoba, so I knew a lot about the drug coverage out there. And I, in moving here, have learned a lot about the coverage out here. There's similarities and differences. It depends on what coverage the person has and what prescription we're giving them. So if this person has private insurance um, through their employer and we prescribe the oral contraceptive pills, most of them, they will be covered by their insurance at usually 80% after they've met their deductible. But let's say that this person is in the working poor or they're a teenager and they are under their parents' drug plan and if they fill a medication, their parents will know what medications they fill, um, that access isn't quite as equal. 
as well for people who have private drug insurance who want a Mirena, like I, as I talked about earlier, the hormonal IUDs, the ones that cost $400, a lot of private health insurance plans actually don't cover that as well. So um, people who have these health insurance plans they're paying into aren't eligible for, for uh, those types of IUDs. All right. And do I know that uh, Access BC has taken a look at this as well, because we've been talking a lot about the costs of contraception. Uh, do we know or have an idea of the costs of unplanned pregnancies? For sure. So there's been a number of studies that looked at this both in Canada and the U.S. So most recently, um, there was a study done in 2015 that was a cost model analysis um, that looked at the cost of unintended pregnancies across Canada. So they said um, in their data, they found that there was probably 180,000 unintended pregnancies that happened in Canada um, in their research. And so they said that that resulted in a cost to provincial governments of $320 million. Um, and when they looked at how um, giving people access to the long-acting reversible contraceptives, the Mirena and Kylina hormonal IUDs mostly, um, how that would affect outcomes, they found that there was significant cost savings. They actually found that even a person having the device in for 12 months, when it actually lasts for five years, that that was enough to save um, over $34 million. So, you know, studies in the U.S., studies in Canada, as well as studies in the U.K. and various other countries have shown that this is a revenue-positive, fiscally responsible policy. Absolutely. And do you find, too, I mean, we're having this conversation now, like you said, the the group has been around for a while. We've also had conversations about providing menstrual products for girls in school, for teenagers in schools to make sure they're free and accessible. Is it Does it seem like we're kind of catching up or at least finally having these conversations when it comes to women and reproduction and their health? For sure. I think that anyone who menstruates, so like trans men included, um, or non-binary people, like anyone who menstruates or anyone who has a uterus that needs to, you know, who doesn't want to become pregnant and has to protect themselves against pregnancy, the burden has always fallen on us. I say us as a person who identifies as a woman. Um, And I think that we're now catching up, and I'm in gynecology at an amazing time where we are um, learning so much about um, caring for people who have uteruses and being more inclusive and ensuring that, you know, people that we care for are um, represented at levels of government and to make sure that policies that are important to the patients that I see every day are represented at various levels of government. And as I mentioned, we're talking about this specifically today because Vancouver Council is taking a look at the motion and and, and possibly likely following Victoria's lead. Are there other cities or municipalities that are that are getting involved in this or what would you like to see as far as uh, people getting more involved? I would love to see people getting more involved. Um, I would say from what I know about uh, what's going on currently, I know that Burnaby also has a motion um, in front of them as well. Um, that I would be curious to know what the result of that is. All right. Uh, very interesting, uh, interesting development and topic. Uh, Dr. Ruth Habte, thank you so much for your time today. 
Thank you for having me on. All right. Uh, Dr. Habte is in obstetrics and gynecology, a resident at UBC. We are going to take a look at a new poll. It was done by Research Co. And it takes a look at some very controversial issues. They have been in the news as of late, particularly dealing with the Delta hospice. That uh, hospice a bit under the microscope because of issues around medically assisted dying. So let's bring in Mario Conseco. He is uh, the president of Research Co. and joins us now on the line. Mario, so great to have you back on the show. Great to be here, uh, here with you, Joe. Uh, so what exactly were you asking people on this issue? Well, this really started after uh, we saw something that was written by Peter McKay, who is, of course, seeking the federal conservative leadership, and he was asking the justice minister uh, to essentially allow uh, those who uh, work in healthcare uh, to be able to object to serving specific cases and specific people. And we wanted to take a look at whether uh, most Canadians feel that that is the right way to go. If you have a situation where your healthcare practitioner uh, essentially has objections uh, to the way you live or to certain decisions that they should be taking and whether that should be allowed to happen. And we find that there's not a lot of appetite for that right now. So it's kind of a weird situation uh, to see Peter McKay wanting to discuss uh, when it's definitely something that is uh, not really liked by many Canadians. Uh, and so you've touched on some some pretty controversial issues or ones that certainly spark opinions. And this uh, survey, so just some of the findings from what I'm taking from this, 44% of Canadians, uh, they are in agreement that healthcare officials should have the ability to object to services if they have a moral or a faith-based objection to them. Yes, that is the one area where the situation changes drastically. We don't see a lot of support for allowing healthcare practitioners not to serve uh, members of the LGBT community, for instance, or not to have any services that have to deal with a a pregnancy termination. Uh, But when it comes to assisted dying, uh, the numbers are definitely different. We see 44% who say they should be able to say, I don't want to touch this case. I don't believe in essentially allowing somebody to die. But there's 42% of uh, Canadians who say that this is something that shouldn't matter. So on this particular issue, there's definitely a a higher level of support, if you will. But then when we ask Canadians, do you think this is a law that should be passed in your area? Uh, Most of them say that they don't want to touch it. Hmm, Interesting. And did you find a big difference then, or you kind of touched on this, when we're talking about physician-assisted death, uh, in BC, the level of support for the caveat for healthcare professionals, uh, BC actually had the highest uh, amount. It is the highest. That was quite surprising in a way, Uh, not because it is British Columbia, but because I was expecting a situation where areas that uh, definitely tend to vote more heavily for the Conservatives, for instance, uh, would be more likely to be supportive of this. But what is interesting next door is, in Alberta, they just went to this very divisive uh, discussion related to Bill 204, which was essentially something that would allow healthcare practitioners to uh, conscientiously object to give certain services. Now, the main problem with that legislation is that the language was so loose that it could be interpreted for anything in any case, and that is one of the reasons why it didn't pass. So Albertans just went through this debate, and they are the least interest in the entire nation to, re- to reopening it, whereas here in B.C. we're just getting started. We have the situation now with the uh, Delta Hospice, and there is more residents who think that this is something that we should have in the books. 
Hmm, interesting. Um, and so we're talking about, because there's a lot of different uh, different things uh, here, not just faith-based, because in the past, I know there have been issues with hospitals that are part of, say, Providence Healthcare, which which is a Catholic uh, faith-based uh, facility or, or group. And I know St. Paul's, uh, the doctors that provided physician-assisted death weren't allowed to discuss it. They weren't allowed to come in and, and, and talk about it. Uh, but then there was the, the conversation of, okay, you, if you don't have this because it's because of your faith you at least have to tell somebody where they can access it or give them another option yes <clears throat> this is something that was also discussed uh, when the legislation was being introduced in alberta now part of the problem there is uh, they do continue to have a shortage of doctors and nurses so you could be at a situation where somebody's requesting a service and it would amount to a longer wait time so that was one of the problems that we had in this uh, case you know the scenario of maybe somebody who you waited a couple of months to see uh, telling you later that they won't do it because they uh, they are not happy with certain decisions that you're taking and then you're back in the waiting line so it's definitely not a simple issue it's not as simple as just saying well somebody will see you in the next five minutes it could be in the next five months uh, exactly, and I also found it interesting the different uh, the different types of of issues that were raised or that were put to people in this particular poll, uh, because we're talking about about faith based, and it really is someone's personal choice or personal you know make that choice for your own life was fine, but it's like projecting that onto the people that you are tasked with serving. Yes, that is definitely. Something that is controversial, I think we have seen something like that in the past, uh, particularly when it comes to the LGBT community. Uh, we've had anecdotal evidence over the past 20, 30 years about doctors who didn't want to deal with specific patients. Um, we don't see a lot of support for this, which in a way was uh, kind of heartening. Um, but it just shows you how complex this issue is. You know, it's not a situation where you can write a law that is designed specifically for assisted dying. And that is one of the reasons why the bill uh, in Alberta didn't really succeed. Uh, it's definitely complex, and it's not something that you can solve with a yes or no question. I think there are certain nuances to these types of debates that we clearly see here in the data. Uh, we see many Canadians who say, I think this is something that makes sense, but then when we ask them if, the, if their legislature should be taking this on, they are more likely to walk away. Hmm. And you mentioned this too, because oftentimes how people answer the polls and when you ask about their political following, th- there is a correlation there. But it sounds like people are, are not, there's not a, as clear of a line when it comes to these questions and how you might vote. Well, it, it is one of the ways, uh, it, it's certainly one of the moments when I've been doing this where you do see some of those changes Uh, happening politically, but not necessarily regionally. Usually you see a situation where conservatives will be in in favor of of something, and a lot of people in Alberta would also be in favor of that specific policy. But on this one, we don't see a lot of support, partly because they're coming out of this debate uh, that didn't really happen to unite anybody behind what was being proposed. Uh, It was quite interesting for me uh, to see the United Conservative Party having a majority in the legislature and essentially letting this die because they knew it wasn't going to succeed the way it was written. Uh, do you think, too, uh, the perhaps opposition to a bill, uh, so the, the opposing a bill that would uh, allow healthcare professionals the ability to have a moral or faith-based, a faith-based objection, is, do you think people read into that thinking, well, if you, if you pass that, if you allow that, then anybody could say that, and it really gives somebody an out, and then would lead to uh, perhaps a hole when it comes to offering those services or having those services available? It is definitely something that is in the minds of many Canadians. Uh, you know, I think there's definitely a situation where we tend to respect the way 
healthcare practitioners might feel about something. Uh, but it could be too complex if it's something that is going to be affecting us directly or something that is going to lead to healthcare waves or to um, certain issues that we maybe don't want to be facing right now. Um, I think that was one of the problems with the bill as it uh, was written in Alberta. Uh, it, it was too loose. You know, you could interpret this to mean anything for any religion and any particular service. Uh, it's going to take a lot of time and definitely a more concerted effort to try to bring something like that and to get the support of the legislature. In This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Alberta or anywhere else in the country. All right. So interesting findings. Mario, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. All right. Mario Canseco, he is the president of Research Co. As you've likely heard, protesters set up on the lawns of the legislature not to actually breaking the court order, they say, because they are not blocking the entrance that people use to go to and from the legislature. However, it was shut down to the public once again. It is a public building, but it was shut because of the ongoing protest. That's just one of many protests we've seen for the past few days. Mike Klassen, who writes a column in the Vancouver Courier, has written about this, and he joins me on the line to talk a bit more about the column and what's happening in BC and right across the country. Mike Klassen, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, the piece that you've written, because I think you share, uh, or a lot of people will read this and uh, agree with uh, this idea of self-righteousness. Well, <clears throat> the self-righteousness is something that it really comes from believing uh, that your cause is, is more important than anything else. And so it really does uh, end up sort of triggering a, a series of, of uh, reactions to that, which is, in, you know, groups begin to start uh, falling into some ethical lapses and thinking that their their cause is more important than anything else. And, you know, I don't think anybody would deny that, you know, the world has its problems and climate change being one of the challenges that we're facing. Uh, but we all have uh, different issues. And, and but unfortunately, this uh, these protesters seem to think theirs is the most important of all. Uh, and I think that really uh, that point uh, was made to uh, the many, many people who wanted to take the West Coast Express home a couple of days ago couldn't. And the particular group on the train tracks by the Haney Bypass that uh, were shutting that down, uh, this was a group, uh, Ivan Drury, who has been at every single protest I think I've ever covered in my mm-hmm. life as uh, being a reporter. Uh, this is a group, their, whole, their hashtag to shut down the country. Uh, I mean, the irony of that being a lot of the people who were taking transit then drove the next day because they didn't want to be stranded once again if another protest popped up. Uh, And I think the anger that we see directed at that particular protest is much more than the others. Well, I think uh, it just, I think it has a little bit to do with the fact that it's right in an urban center. It affects an important uh, piece of transit, transit infrastructure. But trust me, I think that there are a lot of frustrated Canadians and I think the polls are starting to show that. That, uh, for example, the train between uh, Montreal um, and uh, in central Canada was completely shut down for weeks. Uh, we uh, saw these protests that were shutting down government offices, which I found extraordinarily threatening. I mean, to begin with, uh, you know, there are there have been sort of terrorist actions um, that uh, we've known about where government offices have been targeted. 
And uh, when I was doing the research for this column, I came across a spreadsheet that actually listed um, dozens of uh, Victoria, uh, B.C. government offices with an explanation of all the different entrances and exits for all the buildings and uh, a listing for all the number of protesters that would be need to block the entire buildings. And that's completely uh, beyond the pale. How can you um, sort of decide that, that, that your cause is so important that you're going to threaten the ability of people to go uh, to and from work in a government office? That's just crazy to me. Uh, and it's also uh, anytime you question it or if you put that to some of the protesters, the response is often, well, inconvenience is nothing compared to injustice. But I tend to agree with you. At what point uh, does does it be cross the line that you, you can't stop people from going to work? Why are the people who are just trying to get on with their daily lives the target of this? Well, <clears throat> The problem is, is that, uh, you know, it kind of depends uh, what issue that they want to pick. There's always a new issue. There's always some new injustice. And these protesters sort of seem to move from one to the next, whether it was the Occupy movement uh, uh, several years ago. And then there's, you know, a, a series of them that have continued on since. Um, and what was fascinating to me was discovering that a lot of these um, uh, kind of movements have very similar patterns and very similar tactics. Uh, there was a, a UBC professor emeritus named Bill Stanbury who um, wrote a really exhaustive 462-page book um, about the war in the woods. And he spent a, a, a whole chapter talking about the protest tactics that they used. For example, how they used the police and the courts to kind of um, kind of protect themselves. They, they always put barricades up in the presence of police because they know that there are people. And we saw that in one case in the last couple of weeks where people will come and tear down those protests. Well, of course, the police will defend their right to protest. Um, the courts usually only give a slap on the wrist. I mean, if some of these people who are uh, getting themselves arrested, as I saw on Global News last night, uh, were actually getting uh, going to court and, and facing criminal charges, um, that would really be very um, damaging to their ability to, to move through the country. Job applications would be impacted, the, the ability to travel outside of Canada, all those kinds of things they avoid in the, in, by doing these things. So it really, um, that's why they sort of carry on in the way they do. Uh, have you been? I know that the uh, the post and the column is has only been up for a day or, or just over a day. Have you been getting much reaction? Well, you know what, I certainly sort of see the usual Twitter reaction, but uh, to me, I think, uh, and also the the print edition of the paper comes out tomorrow, and that's where I usually try to get uh, a number of readers as well. But what I think, what I'm hoping that people realize is that, um, and I, I didn't focus on you know, the Wet'suwet'en or, or even the climate change aspects to this protest is just the actual nature of the protests themselves. And, uh, you know, there are, you know, a lot of young people out there that are taking days off school um, to join these protests, but I don't think they realize um, really what's kind of behind it and how much history there is. And the other thing, too, that I, you know, have to sort of stop and ask um, it, often this gets positioned as being grassroots, and no question there are thousands of volunteers that come into this. But at the end of the day, there are paid staff that are building these databases of uh, public buildings and organizing these protests and running them really very quietly. Um, as we saw with this uh, Swarm and Hive manifesto, they try and make sure that they uh, are able to hide from the public. So there's no openness and transparency to their tactics. Right. I think that they are just... Uh, 
um, you know, they're there to create as much havoc as possible, shutting down our ports and what have you. All right, Mike, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thanks, Jill. That is Mike Klassen, a columnist with the Vancouver Courier. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday. This is a really interesting story, and it is connected to COVID-19. And as we hear more and more stories and cases of the coronavirus, this is linked to UBC. A UBC faculty of medicine researcher is part of an international team working with a biotechnology company on a pilot clinical trial of a potential new treatment for patients with severe coronavirus infections in China. So some cutting edge stuff. And joining me on the line is uh, Joseph Penninger, director of UBC's Life Sciences Institute and Canada 150 chair in functional genetics. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know you're joining us uh, from a much different time zone. So uh, we really appreciate uh, you taking some time with us today. Yeah, good afternoon. I'm, I'm in Vienna and it's great to talk to you. Uh, so what exactly is being done and, and what does this involve, this pilot to clinical trial? Uh, yes, many, many years ago I actually worked on SARS infections and we discovered the fundamental principle why the SARS virus attaches to cells, infects cells and became a killer virus. And based on this fundamental principle, we actually developed a medicine to prevent this and, and to basically treat people who have severe infections with this virus. And it turns out the new virus uses exactly the same principles, how it infects cells and how it spreads in the body. And of course, over the many years, uh, we developed a rational medicine and we are now going to test this in China. And so that knowledge that you were able to get from SARS and from how SARS was transmitted and from how it was treated, that sounds like that is key in anything that's going to be developed and anything to fight the coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, at this time, I was working in Toronto at the University of Toronto, and I worked with great clinicians in China and people and, and also in Toronto. And we basically found the attachment side of the virus, how it enters cells, a molecule I had identified some years earlier, which is called ACE2. And so this allows the virus to get into cells. And also ACE2 actually protects from lung injury. And we believe that's the reason why the SARS virus became a killer. So we published this many years ago. And basically the viral infection and how it makes people sick guided us in drug development. And now it turns out the new virus, this new COVID-19 virus, uses exactly the same entry site, ACE2. And that's basically the medicine we had developed over many years with the little biotech in Europe called Apiron, which is basically now, we believe, a rational therapy for people who are sick because of the viral infection. So will you be actually using this or will doctors be administering this with people in China that have the severe virus that are that are actively sick right now? Yeah, absolutely. And over the last four weeks, and I, have to, I was amazed to actually put together an international team for Canadian doctors, Canadian scientists. Actually, the initial discovery, I should say, was actually made in Canada when I was in Canada. Uh, we put together a team from amazing clinicians in China, so the Chinese are amazing to work with, and also biotech and people in Europe, scientists, clinicians, biotech. And we really didn't want to talk about this, uh, but really wanted to walk the talk. And in the last four weeks, we, we organized this all, how the drug gets to China, all the ethics committees, how it will be administered, how we set up the clinical trial. 
And so it, two days ago, the drug actually landed in China uh, and is awaiting the first patient to be treated. Uh, fascinating. And, and uh, what, what does that timeline say? Or is that unusual to have such a fast timeline in dealing with something like this? Uh, it was very unusual because normally, and, and you know, I'm a basic scientist, so, so this was my idea. We discovered this. I started bio, the biotech company. But I've never been involved in anything like this. And, and I really have to say this was an amazing experience, uh, you know, how the, how the people really responded and how fast we, we went forward. Because it's one thing to just, you know, claim you make a new drug, but you have to make a drug which is stable. Everybody gets the same amount of the drug. You know, you have to have ethical approval. You must make sure how it's administered, how the people and, and patients actually monitor it, um, how you report this, uh, how you decide who gets the drug and who will be in the trial and gets placebo. All of this needed to figure out and, and it was a, a tremendous effort of many people. So, um, so it's really a team effort of, of you know, can, yeah, largely Canadian doctors and, and also Chinese doctors to make this happen. Right, because what you just described, doesn't that usually or can't that often take years to do? Exactly. So, And of course, what was my luck, uh, you know, over the years of being in science, I, I got to know all these people. So I, I pulled the strings, got them all together, and then uh, they went off by themselves and did tremendous work. So we're also doing some basic research, actually, with people in Sweden who have the virus so we can do really study viral infection and how this drug we actually develop in humans now and, and will be put humans shortly, you know, actually works and how it affects human tissue. So, so we're doing this all in parallel within a few weeks. Hmm. Uh, just uh, amazing to hear that. Uh, th- there's been so much talk about developing a vaccine. Uh, how does this play into that? Uh, you know, our, our drug is, we, we believe from all the science, we did and many, many other researchers in the planet did, uh, should be the rational therapy for this virus after it's broken out. <clears throat> so because it blocks the virus to enter cells. And secondly, it protects the lungs from lung failure. So, so we think we're actually sitting on something which is rational, uh, backed up by all, a lot of solid science over years by many researchers. So this is a therapy for people who get sick. So, of course, to make a vaccine is in the future to prevent uh, people getting infected. Uh, but this will take a while. I mean, people have to realize this. And I think uh, serious scientists and who've always pointed this out. Of course, one will start human trials very fast, but to show that it actually works and can be produced in an amount to really help you know, a large segment of the population it will probably take a year hopefully faster, but that's basically the timelines. Right, because with the virus still spreading and with more cases being announced every day and it appears to be get, going to more countries, how reasonable is it to think there will be enough of this drug to actually get to a large number of people and to help uh, help cure a large number of people? Yeah, so what we are doing at the moment, we're running a small pilot trial, a controlled pilot trial, so we really get the data if it works or not. Uh, and we also had it in clinical trial in humans already. So we know it, it's stable, it can work, it does exactly what we expect it to do. Of course, we have to carefully test it in humans. 
to be honest, we have drugs for around 130 patients. So if this really works, we need to make a major production run to make the drug for potentially thousands of patients to really help them. And so we are trying just to, to figure out how this can be done because as a small biotech in Europe, it's not so easy to actually do this. So that's uh, basically the next step. If a small pilot trial, if this works out well, then we will uh, move very fast into a larger clinical study with hundreds of patients and then make a large production run to, you know, hopefully it does what science tells us it should do to help people survive the disease mm-hmm. and actually, you know, they don't, don't get it so severe and then produce it for many, many people. So that would be the now. Right. And and just one other question. Without having learned what you did dealing with SARS, do you think that this would have been able to happen so quickly? Uh, no, it would not. So the SARS, in retrospect, uh, might have been a lucky break for us because it actually guided us to the principles of infection and might have guided us how to develop medicines to to help for the next outbreak of some virus which uses the same principles of infection. All right. Well, it is fascinating research. And again, Dr. Penninger, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this today. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. All right. Have a good day. You too. That is Dr. Joseph Penninger, Director of UBC's Life Sciences Institute, also the Canada 150 Chair in Functional Genetics, and he was on the line with us from Vienna, and that's where that bio lab is working on a cure, really, is working on a drug for people with COVID-19, as we see more and more cases of that coronavirus in more and more countries. For some people, being told you have to go and quarantine or stay at home for 14 days, you cannot come to work for 14 days, might sound like a pretty good thing, might sound like a much-needed break. But what happens when your work then says, also, you're not getting time off for this, you have to use sick days or vacation time, you need to somehow make up this time or figure out a way to work from home. Well, that is a story that is unfolding. A BC woman spoke with Global News. We are not revealing her identity because she, for privacy reasons, doesn't want that out there. She was at a Ridge Meadows hospital earlier this month when she was uh, she contacted, came in contact with somebody with COVID-19. She was then contacted by public health officials and she told Global News that because she was in the vicinity at the same time that the person was there, they called back and said that they were retracing everyone's comings and goings and that she has been asked to go into self-isolation, to use the self-isolation protocol until early March. Basically, stay at home, stay in quarantine until early March. Well, she went on to say that her work told her to use sick time or vacation time and that uh, there was nothing else they could do. Well, what are the rules here? Where does the law stand when we're dealing with a situation like this? Let's bring in Stephen Gilman, an employment lawyer and associate at Semfiro Tumarkin LLP. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, Jill, thanks for having me on. And and to talk about an issue that seems to be at the forefront of everyone's mind, not just in Canada, but across the globe. Um, In looking at this, I mean, we've heard a lot about the economic impacts on a macro scale, but what happens for the individual is really the question here. So, you know, it's a terrible set of circumstances. You're, by no fault of your own, come in contact with 
perhaps someone with the coronavirus and you're led into quarantine. So there is options. Um, You know, you had mentioned working from home. If the employer has any way to accommodate the individual, so if it's a job that can be done remotely, there would seem to be an obligation on the employer to assist with this. But what happens if you work at a construction site or you have to physically be at the job in order to perform the tasks? There's there's different options. There may be, and, and I think anyone who finds himself in this situation should look and see if their employer has a short-term disability policy that they might be able to apply to. Um, the other is EI sickness benefits, and this is something that's not well-known to all Canadians, but in the event that someone is unable to work due to sickness or, or a potential illness, um, there is 16 weeks of of employment insurance available to individuals. So those are some ideas of where an, an employee who finds himself in that situation uh, can go. But, but an employer cannot force you to take vacation time or reduce your vacation time as a result of your illness. Uh, and, that, and that was one of my questions, because that, that's the issue that's come up and people wondering, well, can they force you to use that time? So, but, but is an employer obligated to give you sick time? Well, it would depend. I mean, an, an employer is certainly obligated to let you uh, to have you off work um, and and not penalize you for it in any type of way. But the employer is not obligated to pay for your sick time. Uh, the Employment Standards Act in British Columbia does not uh, in, entitle the employee to paid sick time. But there is, at, at the very minimal level, EI sickness benefits which are available. All right. So if somebody was to find themselves in this scenario, and thankfully it's not something that's widespread, hopefully it doesn't become that. If somebody's in the scenario, though, they've been ordered to quarantine, their employer is not going to pay them for the time, what would they actually do then to access that EI benefit? Well, they would get their employer to fill out a record of employment. And, and a lot of people think when I have my employer fill out a record of employment, it's it's because I'm being dismissed. So that's not the case here. Just a record of employment stating that they're off work for illness or, or uh, some sort of medical reason. That can be submitted to Service Canada, and the employee should be able to receive sickness benefits up to a maximum of 16 weeks. At, at a very base level, that is what the individual uh, might be entitled to. There may be a greater benefit if the employee has a short-term disability policy they can access. But the other point is, if it's a job where even some of the functions can be done from a remote location, there would be an obligation on the employer to try to accommodate the employee who's sick or, or perceive sick in any event. Right, because one of the, the things that's a bit complicating in this issue too is the people that are being quarantined aren't sick for the most part. They're just there to make sure they're not contagious or infectious, but they're not actually unable to work. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not unprecedented. We saw a bit of this in SARS many years back. The government did create some programs to help people in that same circumstance, but yeah, it's it's the perception of illness, even under the Human Rights Code. If if someone's terminated for um, saying they're sick, but there's no proof they're sick, it, it's the perceived illness. So there is protections under the BC Human Rights Code for individuals who might be sick or who, by no fault of their own, are being ordered to be off work. And and do you find then people, like you said, a lot of people weren't aware about that uh, EI benefit. Is it an issue of making sure people know this and getting the information out there? 
Yeah, I mean, it's not hidden information, but a lot of people are unaware that if they're ill, that there is the protections of EI. You know, I've had many clients who've been issued an ROE and, and they say, Steve, have I been terminated? And, and the answer is no, no, you're off ill and the employer is actually trying to assist you by providing this record of employment. So um, it's definitely something to look into if you're quarantined for that reason or if you're sick for any other reason and your employer... Uh, isn't subject to a short-term disability policy. And, 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 you know, it's worth looking into. Many benefit plans have that uh, type of protection for employees. But absolutely, EI sickness benefits are available. It's something I would, I would strongly encourage the individual we're talking about, but, but any individual in the same circumstances or who's ill to access. Does it do anything as far as then, in this case, we know the exact time. It's a 14-day quarantine. At the end of the 14 days, though, is there any issue with the, the employer? They have to give you the job back it's not as though they can then say oh well actually we're terminating the position or does it does it does it put the employee in any kind of compromising position that way well from a starting point if that happens to any employee on any type of sick leave they should give me a call or give an employment lawyer a call leaving that aside no they absolutely cannot do that that's a human rights violation um, the same job has to be available to the individual upon their return from work, uh, which is which is protected under our code. Right. Do you find too, though, is there the possibility then, without people knowing that information, or without, or maybe people being concerned about it, that even though, I mean, in this case, it's the self isolation protocol, uh, people might be tempted, even if they're told you should really go into isolation, to not do it because of the headache they think it's going to create at work. Well, yeah, and, and, and I mean, not being a medical professional, it's hard for me to answer, but I would say, if, if especially the severity of, of, of uh, the virus that's spreading around, they should absolutely listen to what their doctor or public health officials say, but they should not be concerned about coming back to their job uh, under any circumstances. And if they feel uh, they've been adversely discriminated against coming back to their job when they've been cleared medically, that's another issue, because there might be a stigma attached to that individual re-entering the workplace after being in a quarantine. So that's also something that employees should be aware of. Absolutely. And I guess, too, there's the possibility, and in this particular case, we're talking about one person, but there could be, because it's a virus that it's when you're exposed to it. If a workplace, say, had 20 people and 15 of them had to go on quarantine, uh, does the wor- is the workplace then allowed to, or how do, are they allowed to bring in other people, or how would they deal with that? Yeah, there's no issue bringing in someone else to assist while an employee's off. So hire some employees on a temporary basis. I mean, obviously that would be devastating for the workplace and difficult to handle. Um, but there's no issue bringing in somebody else on a temporary basis to do the job. So long as those individuals who are off work, once they're medically cleared to return, have the same position that they left before. Um, it, it's no different than a maternity leave um, or a leave for any other type of illness. All right. So bottom line, though, and in this case, if an employee is told you have to use your sick time, you have to use your vacation time or loo time that you've banked, that's not the case. No, an employer cannot force the individual to use vacation time while off. I mean, this this is no different than an illness, uh, no different than a maternity leave. Um, These individuals are protected by our our very robust human rights code. Um, Now, if the individual wants to use their vacation time to fill in, that should be no issue. But the employer cannot uh, force you to take vacation time. We look at the article in, in, uh, recently put out on the individual you're speaking of was worried about taking time off for family later in the year. If you're on a medical leave for no fault of your own, you should not f- face any penalty other than 
the lost wages, which, which hopefully EI can help that person catch up with a bit. All right. Good advice. And again, this is a one case of case with one individual. Hopefully it doesn't get worse, but good advice for people to know either way. Stephen Gilman, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, Jill. All right. Uh, Stephen Gilman, employment lawyer and associate at Samfiro Tamarkin LLP. What are your thoughts on Major League Baseball? Do you think Vancouver would be a good choice for a franchise? Well, a lot of people say, yeah, absolutely. Bring it on. There is a report out today. It's in The Athletic by Sean Fitzgerald, and he is joining us on the line now to talk a little bit more about this. Sean, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, so what's all the buzz about? Because we know some uh, people, some delegations have been in Vancouver. What are they doing? Yeah, so twice over the last two years, uh, delegations from the Arizona Diamondbacks have gone up to Vancouver uh, for fact-finding missions. Um, the first time was in 2018, and that was to scout out BC Place Stadium as a potential temporary home for baseball. Um, the, the Diamondbacks had then been in a sort of a fight for, um, you know, their, their lease and, and other things around their, their home at Chase Field in Phoenix. And as they were gaining control of their home, um, they started looking at things like the state of repair. It's one of the older stadiums. It's 22 years old now. And, and they wanted to sort of guard against, you know, what happens if the roof seizes or something springs a leak? Like, is there a place that they could go for seven, 10 days, two weeks uh, to play baseball if they had to? And, you know, they reached out to the commissioner's office and the commissioner's office sent them a list of, you know, a half dozen um, potential locations. And, and one of them was, was Vancouver. And so that would be BC Place that they would be that they're eyeing up. That's that's where they that's where they went for a walk and they went walking around. Uh, it was a guided tour with folks, obviously from Vancouver, uh, and and they were showing you know pictures of you know what the stadium looks like when it's configured for baseball. Um, you know pictures from uh, you know when when the Blue Jays and the Seattle Mariners and that dearly departed Montreal Expos and the Colorado Rockies had a had a you know a spring event there in, in the early nineties and and of course the the Blue Jays had been there before in the eighties. Uh, so they were shown pictures. They were you know given sort of a Coles Notes version of what the local economy looked like, of what, what you know major events look like when they're held at BC Place Stadium to to give them a sense of, of what it might look like if a major league baseball team had to play a couple games there. Hmm. And you mentioned uh, that they are in the running as a potential. So what other cities do you know? What other cities they're looking at? Well, yeah, um, you know, Major League Baseball is, is always, you know, on the verge of, of something that, you know, Montreal has been, you know, mentioned as a potential destination ever since the Expos left. So, you know, two years ago, around the time that we're talking about the first visit to Vancouver, uh, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred was speaking on a U.S. television network about potential, you know, places that baseball might be looking to expand. And, you know, one of them was, you know, Mexico City, um, Austin, Texas was one, Portland was another. And, you know, for the first time, as far as anybody could tell, uh, Vancouver was thrown out there as a potential destination. Hmm, interesting. So what would it take, though, to actually go from this idea to having a Major League Baseball team in Vancouver? 
Yeah, I mean, it would it would require a, a very wealthy owner for one. Um, you know, there'd have to be demonstrable interest from a television network. Now, you know, Canada has Bell and Rogers. Rogers owns the Blue Jays, so would this maybe be an opening for Bell to say purchase interest in a baseball team uh, to offer them summer programming to, to complement the Canadian Football League? Um, and then there'd be fan avidity, and there are folks on the ground in Vancouver who you know point out that you know there is a significant fan interest. Uh, some Mariners. Lots of Blue Jays um, for baseball in that city. Well, and all you have to do is look at the border lineups when the Blue Jays play the Mariners because a ton of people from Vancouver make the drive down to Seattle to see that. And I'm guessing they're looking at that to see, yeah, could they fill a stadium in Vancouver? Yeah, no, and absolutely. I mean, you know, with the struggles the Blue Jays have been having, it's probably about time that Canada gets an actual Major League Baseball franchise. Hmm. And you mentioned uh, they would need a they would need a, a wealthy owner. There's some fans that aren't going to like that comment. Uh, they would need a, a wealthy owner. I, I don't suppose we're at the point where any names are being uh, being bounced around, are they? No, this is all very preliminary, exploratory even. But there's a, a former Blue Jays assistant general manager, Bart Given, uh, based in Vancouver, who, who would like to see this as a chance to start the conversation. So you know, nothing's in place. It's been a visit. But, you know, at least Vancouver's being mentioned as, as part of this rotation of cities that seems to be mentioned in will they or won't they when it comes to baseball relocation or expansion. And, and he's, he's willing and hoping that this starts a conversation of, look, like Vancouver's a big market. It's, it's it's a gorgeous city. That's not a big secret. There's lots of people there. There's lots of money there. Why can't it, you know, have more of the so-called big four sports franchises within its city borders? Well, and that would, I think people would also think back then, is it a bit of a, a, a negative thing for Vancouver that we didn't, we had a basketball team, it fizzled out, No, people didn't go to the games, that if we couldn't support a basketball team, is there concern there? Do you think that we couldn't also support a baseball team? I think there's lots um, that we've learned in the intervening years about what happened to the Grizzlies. Um, and, and frankly, what's happened to basketball in Canada that, you know, you see the Raptors and what they did on that run last year, not just winning the championship, but, but how pockets of the basketball community sprouted up and were celebrated and, you know, made headlines everywhere. You know, there are 15,000 people watching, you know, game five at uh, Mosaic stadium in Regina that it's possible that, you know, when the Grizzlies were badly mismanaged, frankly, um, you know, on the court and off that, you know, it might just have been a bit early that the, the basketball community and the basketball culture, it might have been a bit ahead of its time. And, that you know, had Vancouver, you know, had an NBA team today, given how the, the game and the fan base um, and the appetite for basketball in this country has matured over the, the intervening decades, that the story would be a lot different. And, and certainly you look at the economic indicators in Vancouver and frankly, in the Pacific Northwest right now, uh, that's gaining a lot of attention from the very wealthy people who run these organizations. Uh, we do have the the Vancouver Canadians, which a lot of people also enjoy going to those games. Uh, they're connected with the Blue Jays. Would that cause any kind of friction or would that be an issue, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was, it is believed that, you know, on, I believe it was the second trip uh, last fall that the, the Diamondbacks delegation, they were offered to go, you know, see a game at Nat Bailey Stadium, and they politely declined. And, and part of that was, 
one that they wanted to make sure that the focus was still on, you know, the reason for their second visit. And that second visit, by the way, was to go see a Mumford and Sons concert uh, <laughs> to get a sense of how uh, events were staged at BC Play Stadium. So they might, you know, translate that to Chase Field back in Phoenix. Um, but yes, I mean, certainly these things would have to be discussed. But, you know, luckily for the Canadians and their fans and the folks who go down to the NAT, um, you know, these are these are all still very, very preliminary, nascent conversations. So what do you see happening next? More visits to Vancouver, more conversations taking place? How do you see this going forward? Well, I mean, to move forward, you need, you know, take a look at what's happening in Montreal. Um, you know, are there ownership groups in place? Um, are there, you know, discussions for a viable stadium? Um, are some of these early things being mobilized? Because, you know, baseball doesn't move around necessarily on hunches. You're going to need to have, you know, a business plan, a stadium, and some exceptionally wealthy people who want to say, yeah, put us in this game. We want to get in there somehow. So, you know, it maybe starts with a conversation now and, and, and says, you know, the realization that, yeah, maybe, maybe Vancouver does factor into these talks. And I suspect it would move along from there. All right. We'll be watching uh, to see what happens next for sure. Sean Fitzgerald, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, Sean is a national, a senior national writer at The Athletic Canada.